This is Erica in Edmonton, Shannon in Durham, and Chip in Durham. Welcome to the Audio Guide to Babylon 5, Episode 86, Rising Star. As always, thank you for joining us. As not always, we have a special guest. And also, as not always, this particular guest, Jason Snell, is here for an episode that is not incredibly dire. There was no child death at all in Rising Star. So welcome, Jason. Happy, 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 happy. Hey, everybody, who wants a happy ending? You get a happy ending, and you get a happy ending, and everyone gets a happy ending, mostly. Except... Yeah, so Jason, please tell us why you wanted to to join us to talk about Rising Star, of all things, and not say um, intersections in real time. (laughs) Well, I I would have been up for that. But um, the the story is, so 20 years ago now, shockingly, is when they made these episodes. It's not that long ago. Tell me it's not that long ago, Jason. (laughs) You lose a decade somewhere, Chip. So let's say 10 years ago in 1997 when this happened. Yeah, sure. I'm sure that was it. Um, we, we, the 2000s doesn't get counted. Uh, anyway, 20 years ago, I, and I mentioned this on a previous episode, I went to the offices of Babylon 5 and did a story about how they were using technology, especially in the special effects side. They were using, um, they were using Macs uh, and other computers to do uh, compositing, and they were doing all the 3D renders and and all, all the sort of like interesting things they were doing, building set, you know, printing out stickers on, on, uh on inkjet printers from the art department and and using those for set dressing, all these things. So we went down and I spent a day at the Babylon 5 uh, offices, uh, part of the day at Netter Digital, where they were doing the special effects and the editing and part of the day in the building uh, where they where they shot the show. And so I got to see them shoot episode 422 production order, which should be next week, but isn't. There's a story about that. I don't know when you want to talk about that but anyway uh so they were shooting that episode they were editing episode 421 which is rising star so i got to watch tony dow the director of this episode and as they said at the time as george johnson the producer as he was walking us past and letting us watch them do this edit in their edit bay on an avid system because another use of like computers to do their edits he says there's our director tony dow yes that tony dow because it's <laughs> leave it to beaver tony dow mm-hmm. is is who this is who directed this episode he and the editor in this episode are uh cutting the episode together as we watched which was pretty awesome and uh so i got to see that and then the cgi guys and the the post-production guys were all working on an earlier episode, I want to say maybe No Surrender, No Retreat. I think it was quite a bit earlier in the season, and I saw them doing that. But very specifically, um, Tony Dow and the editor were editing um, a... Uh, it's the scene where Jakar and Delenn and Londo are talking in the council chambers about how they're um, getting this uh, this new interstellar alliance together. And I got to see them, like, they had multiple shots and they were figuring out how to cut it. And they actually did a uh, uh, a flip because there's actually a moment where Delenn is supposed to be off to Jakar's uh, right and he's looking right. And the next shot, she was originally shot looking, or, you know, he's looking to his right, to our left. And she was looking the same direction and it was really confusing. And while we were sitting there watching, they flipped that shot. Which means that if you watch, she's got an asymmetric uh, sort of robe that she's wearing that forms like the letter Y. And in that one cutaway, it's 
reversed <laughs> because uh, because they and if you look at it, you realize there's no way she could have been facing the other way because um, it would have made no sense. Like it's like she and Jakar are both looking off screen. It doesn't make sense instead of looking sort of toward each other across the cut. And uh, I love that moment. Uh, and I remember 20 years later because it was that moment where I thought, you know, the editor and director of this story, um, they know that human beings look at faces and not Mm -hmm. at clothing and that it's more important for her face to be pointing the right direction than it is for her asymmetric robe to be um, to be facing the right direction. It also made me realize, huh, uh, asymmetry is bad if you're if you're doing costuming because <laughs> it, it limits <laughs> limits what the director can do. So anyway, yeah, so I was present when this episode was edited. And um, a few months later, somebody who was very friendly in the, um, or maybe even a few weeks later, in the production department who I met, uh, sent me a VHS tape with this episode and the previous episode in director's cut form. So no effects and no music, and that was months before these episodes aired. So I was able to actually wow. take those and 20 years later, um, line them up with the DVD and uh, see what was different uh, between the director's cut and the final. So that was also kind of cool. So that, these are the reasons why I asked to be on this episode is I was kind of around at least the day that I was there was the day that they were they were putting this episode together. Gotcha. Well, that that makes perfect sense. And and yeah, because otherwise I would have been very... It would have been very strange to have you on for a happy episode without an extra reason. <laughs> yes. So, so there's a reason. provided us with that. Oh, you're welcome. <laughs> uh, Chip and Shannon, do you have any, any little tidbits for us before we dive in to this episode full force? It's amazing to me, watching this again for the first time after too many years, <laughs> to realize that this feels like a series finale, not even a season finale. This feels like a yes. series finale episode. Mm-hmm. It's like yeah. Babylon 5 could have stopped right here. Boom. Yep. Yeah, Stephen was uh, just, like, he turned to me and he's like, this is this is it, right? Like, there's there, there can't be anything else after this. <laughs> he, was, he was very confused, which was really delightful from my perspective. So no, they they definitely pulled what um what Sherlock did with its most recent season four. There was a very large, pretty bow stuck on top of the package, um, in the assumption that there will be no more seasons. And of course, since then, there has been talk of a season five for that show. We'll see what happens with that. But yeah, at this point, uh, JMS and the production team were making no assumptions uh, that there was going to be a fifth season. And they did the best they could to um, wrap it up uh, as best uh, as best they could. So they shot episode 422 the week that I was there as a coda for the series. But it is not how, sh- how should I phrase this as to not spoil it? It it is a coda. Let's just leave it at that. And that, yeah, that this works. this is literally the end, as far as they knew, of the Babylon Five story. And I mean, mm-hmm. not to jump to the end, but like, there's a voiceover at the end that basically <laughs> says, "Bye, everybody. Yeah, uh, I hope you exactly. enjoy your story. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and this isn't even the last episode of the season, even no? regardless, yeah. because there's going to be another one next week. We're not done with se- series four, y'all. Mm-hmm. It's it is. It is just sort of like a delightfully weird, <laughs> convoluted way that that this 
this novel for television was sort of put together because, you know, with the uncertainties at the time, um, it just it leaves for a really kind of interesting cultural artifact of television to go back and, and dig into it this wee way. And speaking of digging into it, let's let's do that. Let's do your little reset here. What you sort of need to know coming into this, to this, this sort of like series finale type episode. What you need to know is pretty much everything else. Um, but the short version is that Earth Force Captain John Sheridan has not only been in command of the space station Babylon 5, he also collected a group of Earth Force ships and engaged in an action against his own Earth government, which toppled the authoritarian regime of President Clark, who assassinated his predecessor to take power and assassinated himself when Sheridan's forces defeated those who were loyal to the president. In the midst of all that, dashing, swashbuckling ranger Marcus Cole uses alien technology to trade his life essence to save the life of Commander Susan Ivanova because he loves her. Oh, sniffle. Mm. And that brings us to Rising Star, in which EarthGov begins to deal with the fallout of the Civil War by determining what to do with Captain John Sheridan, who is forced to resign his post. Meanwhile, Delenn makes history, again, by convincing the League of Non-Aligned Worlds to become a proper alliance, just in time to give Sheridan a new job as president. But while all that is happening, Susan is forced to deal with the fallout of Marcus's action, as a result, she chooses to leave Babylon 5, receiving a promotion to captain and a command of a new Warlock-class destroyer. Plus, we have marriages. Um, Michael and Lise are or will get hitched, that's not entirely clear, and Delenn and John get married. Oh, and Ambassador Jakar is colossally skeevy. So it's basically the end of a Shakespearean comedy. <laughs> so uh, that's it. I hope you guys have enjoyed Babylon 5. Yeah, bye, 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 bye. everybody. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so there's there is a lot to talk about in in this episode because it really does knit up almost everything else that has happened. Like the the, the big broad strokes are sort of you know cut off and, and brought to an end, and a lot of that fallout happens on Earth. So let's let's talk about that. Let's let's talk about that. We've got uh, we've got the the old president is out. Clark is is defeated. He is dead. He has a nice necklace. <laughs> that calls him a traitor. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. And we have a new president who or has... at least interim acting president. Yes, right, right, acting president. So she is she is in charge. Um, and I had a little trouble with her performance, but I really liked the character. <sighs> so um, I heard a gasp there. What was that about? No, that was, I was sighing. A sigh of that, relief. Yeah, that's I what ha- I took oh, it as. I, I, I had that exact same thought, which is, I love that this is, uh, I love that this is a a woman who's in charge of EarthGov, and I I think her dialogue is great. I think yes. that scene where she talks to Sheridan and she's like, uh, which you can read once you know what's going on, and you go back and watch it again, you can read it both directions. That like Sheridan has to ask for amnesty. Um, for his people, but it, it's actually a means to an end, but he makes it seem like he's being talked into it. That's a good scene, and the dialogue is good, and I like the idea of the character. And yeah, every time I watch it, I think the actress just kind of doesn't pull it off. Some I people really... accused her of... Uh, she's using her natural accent, according to JMS. She's using she's not putting on a fake accent. She, that's, her, mm-hmm. that's her natural voice. But there is something about it that... I, I don't I don't think she was horrible, but I didn't think she rose to the occasion. 
I felt uh, like she was actually struggling with the dialogue and the language. I, I like her accent. Um, she's Polish, and I, I enjoyed I enjoyed the sound of her accent. But I felt like she was struggling with the English language so much that it made it hard for me to take her seriously as the president of the world in you know in this show in which you know clearly english is the language that is you know spoken by earth force and all of that and you know you can have whatever feelings you want about about that as a choice but that is what has been established so i find it difficult to believe that the per- a person who is a good enough statesman to have risen to this position is ha- is able to speak so eloquently with the words that she says, but not be able to physically get the words out in a manner that is engaging and clear, I guess is my problem. Yeah, I I would, I would say her performance for me was uneven. There were times when she nailed it for me. And then as Erica said, there were times that it just seemed like she was having some trouble getting the words out clearly in, you know, whether it was following what the director was trying to give her or just general, um, you know, not as familiar with English, who knows. Uh, But, you know, yeah, it would have been nice if um, if she'd been able to to rise to the occasion. Yeah. This episode is kind of soaking in real politic. Delin does something uh, that is kind of dramatic in the middle of all of her um, idealism. And Sheridan, of course, uh, making the moves that he needs to clear the decks for him to become president. The acting president is also a real politic kind of person, uh, talking about how Sheridan did this stuff the inconvenient way. The bitch of it is you probably did the right thing, you know, those sort those sorts of things. You know, she's she she's a canny politician. She's a survivor. She would have to have been, been to survive to the Clark regime and still find herself named acting president after he killed himself. And yet you get that awful scene between her and Sheridan where she talks about whether she should put the medal on him or shoot him, and maybe she should do both. Yeah, and that just I, falls completely flat. And, and, and I think a little of that is JMS's dialogue. He, 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 found something he, he found something he thought was cute and ran with it, and I... But, and perhaps he should have found some other way to say it. Or he sh- they should have cast somebody who is able to sell it. Because I actually, I do like that line. I think it's kind of funny. And delivered in the right way, I think it would have been fine. I think it was just that she struggled. That was one of, of several lines where she emphasized a word that I didn't think was supposed to be the word that was meant to be emphasized in it. So I don't know if it's because English is a second language or what, that she maybe didn't quite get the sort of the style and the cadence of of the way those sorts of things should have been said. But I, as Jason said at the beginning, these are, as written, really great scenes. And it's a really interesting interplay between this person who is now in charge of the entire world and this person who at the time as we're watching it we don't know yet and neither does he is going to be in charge of the entire many worlds the entire alliance so it's a it's it's great sort of like a chess match going on that we don't even know we're in the middle of until we get to the end of the episode yeah i wonder about 90s casting only in the sense that um and Forgive me for saying this, but although I think nobody in Hollywood casting would ever say something like this, which is, I think this needed to be an older woman too. I think there, I think I would have rather have seen 
um, a middle-aged actress, somebody who could really get across like she's got weight. I think of something like um, On the Expanse, Shora Agdashlu, right? She is a minor uh, UN person who actually has a lot of clout behind the scenes. And when she talks, and she's a great actress, and, you know, was that available to Babylon 5 in 1996? Probably not. But, But I think of a part like that, and I think she brings such weight because you get the sense just... In, in looking at her and hearing her voice that she has seen it all and she's got it hasn't been an accident that's gotten her to this point and uh, Beata Posniak here is you know she's really young and the way the part is written is not like young and a little over her head in over her head but she's making the best of it it is written as somebody who has been through it all is a survivor is a political animal knows what needs to be done is basically on the same level as Sheridan and I I, I kind of feel like maybe uh, that would have helped the part. Like, it, I don't think it was written for somebody as young as her. Yeah. And I mean, it, on, on the other hand, uh, they cast the the general guy who is like basically yelling all of his lines at, <laughs> at Sheridan. Like next to him, she doesn't really look that bad. Although I, his performance reminded me so much of David Lynch's character in Twin Peaks. I don't know if anybody yeah. remembers that, but just yeah, yelling just everything. <laughs> yep. So... Uh, yeah, yeah, so he doesn't. Maybe Sheridan doesn't have the uh, the the greatest actors to act against uh, in this case. But I feel that it was very interesting to watch him go through what he goes through. And I mean, at the beginning, I genuinely thought that he was that he didn't know that he had anything to fall back on because I didn't know about that yet. And just it, I think, regardless, he's still bummed out that that this is the decision that they've come to makes perfect sense but it's still sad for him to have to resign his post because he really cares he wouldn't have done all of this if he didn't care in the first place did that play out okay for you guys i love it i think that um there's a moment in that room where um he realizes that this is absolutely the path that he has to take and he maybe has known it all along that this is the price he has to pay for saving the earth basically and you you see his head drop and um, and it's that moment of like the thing that means the most to him, which is being an Earth Force officer, he is going to have to give it away. And then you follow that up with his resignation speech that he gives mm-hmm. where he's he's wearing the EEA uniform one last time. And right. it's very sad, right? Because this is like he's back in the uniform so that he can take it off and say goodbye. And it, it's obviously like he knows that there are other things going on, but it doesn't change the fact that this has sort of been his identity and he has to, he has to, uh, he, this is a sacrifice. Like this is what he loses by doing the right thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, before we get to his, his goodbye speech, um, we also have Bester coming in. So we get quite a bit of Sheridan dealing with uh, people in power here. I appreciated the direction. Nice job, Tony Dow of Bester's entrance. So you don't even get to see like quite who it is. I mean, I figured it out right away, but mm-hmm. it, it, it felt important. And then he sits down into frame and, and they have their little tete-a-tete. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how was it to see Bester here at the, at the end of all things, as it, as it feels like? I was interested um for one thing, Walter Koenig's performance this time around was standing out to me. His his body language, his physicality. There were times when, you know, he was sort of leaning forward to make his point. And then there were times when Sheridan was, you know, accusing him, you know, of what's happened to the virus. And, and he like almost literally like sort of shrank as he was claiming, you know, I do not know of what you speak. But if I did know of what you speak, I would, you know, do this, this and this. So I was actually kind of 
mesmerized a bit uh, to, uh, as far as what Koenig was doing with the role. The thing that, I don't know, maybe this is, you know, just me wanting a little bit more development from a character that has recurred as often as his character has. I kind of got the feeling that by now, Bester really ought to know or realize that it's much more likely that Sheridan spared Carolyn than used her. But he went in there just so convinced that, you know, so ready to, you know, use snipers to to kill Sheridan and get his revenge if he dared to sacrifice his lover as one of the telepops that had to be used on the Earth Force ships. That just, that one thing sort of struck me this time. It's like, you know, Bester, haven't you learned a little bit about Sheridan by now? I think that that's that's a fair criticism, but I didn't read it that way because in the end, Sheridan's a mundane and an adversary. I, I, I don't think that Bester is inclined to give anybody the benefit of the doubt, particularly a mundane. Mm-hmm. And he is also, you know, he is he's a villain in, in this show. And I think that he suffers here from something that villains often do in that that it's hard for the bad guys to really understand good guys doing something for for a good reason you know i i suspect that bester in that uh in in sheridan's place would probably have just used her in you know in part to show that he can you know so it's uh I, i'm not surprised that he was uncertain about which way it would go. And Remember I, I that do... time when he was next to her uh, cryogenic capsule in the cold storage lockers or whatever, mm-hmm. and he says, they're probably laughing at me. He's got a pretty low opinion of the B-5 command crew, and I don't mm-hmm. think that that's changed. I did. I, I agree completely with you, Shannon, about his his performance. My favorite part was after he finds out that she's actually still okay and that she'll be transferred to Earth. I mean... Bester, who is this character who has really just shown his, you know, strength to the enemy pretty much all the time. He's got this very brave face that he puts up. He physically, you're right, turns around away from Sheridan, has to lean down on the table and then sit down and put his head mm-hmm. in his hands. Um, that was that seemed like the most human moment that we have seen from this character, um, even more so than him standing next to to Carolyn. I mean, he just practically collapses, and the fact that he does it in front of this guy who is his, you know, one of his great adversaries. Um, it, it, it humanized Bester a little bit for me. So even if we had never had anything else of this show ever, um, I feel like this is, that was a, a good moment for this character to sort of mm-hmm. go out on to have us show him as a, a, a full person. It's kind of nice. Still, though, it feels like Bester, like the only way he knows how to deal with anybody is mm-hmm. by threatening their their lives. Like this is how he this is how he interacts with the other people is by threatening them. And I do have to say something that every time I watch this, including the first time, I've thought is, what is Sheridan doing here? Like, I mean, he's kind of being a jerk, and I don't know whether he's just decided that he's so fed up with Bester or he's so incensed at Bester. Um, accusing him of this and and saying, I will kill you if you hurt her, that he draws it out. But like he <laughs> gives a long speech about how we, we, we did this and we looked for single people and people without families. 
and and oh, but but Carolyn is one of those I know. And then we did this, and then we thirty percent of them, or we sent off to their deaths, and it's really bad. Oh, not her. Like he, it's like what is he doing? Like he could have very it's easily getting said, his own little bit of revenge back. I mean, this he he is no seriously. I mean, it, John. this is the first time he's seen Bester since learning what Bester did to Garibaldi. So that's true. That's true. I don't necessarily blame Sheridan for being a jerk to him because well. Sheridan's got plenty of reasons to do so. Um, plus, plus, I don't know if it's just Sheridan being a bit of a braggart or, or what, but yeah, deliberately sort of saying, I'm not like you. I yeah. would not do this. Well, you would, I wouldn't. That's, so and that's, where, I, that that's where I come in on my Doyleist hobby horse that I've been on for several episodes right now is that JMS insists on Sheridan and the other characters being the good even, guys. Even, even, when the, even when he allows Shades of Grey, and there are a couple of Shades of Grey in this episode, in the end, he keeps he, he has to fall back on, but Sheridan's not like them. Sheridan's a good man. But he gives it to him here. I mean, that's the thing is he makes him wait for it, which is with it, which is Sheridan twisting the knife a little bit, which has always kind of bothered me a little bit. Right. I also think that the implication when he says this to him is basically uh, he's implying if we had we came up with the, what we thought was the fairest way of deciding who we sent, and she didn't get sent, but not because of you, but because uh, she just happened to not be sent. I also think that it it, it I've always thought. He could have also said something like, look, Bester, I know she doesn't have any family, but we know she has you. And we and we considered that. And he and he doesn't say that. And that frustrates me, too, because I keep thinking, like, how do you say she has no family and no connection when we know she has a connection? And it's ultimately it's because Sheridan's winding him up and then lets him down. And it must be that. I just I feel like Sheridan's probably better than that, but you're right. He's he's with what happened with Garibaldi. He's probably willing to uh, give a little bit more uh, trouble to to Bester than maybe he normally would. I hadn't I hadn't even really sort of considered it that way, but but after listening to you guys talk about it, I do think that that I buy him wanting to punish bester a little bit for his part and what he went through i mean think about it when when sheridan comes out of you know he's being rescued he empties an entire ppg into one of the guards which is you know not the nicest thing to do certainly certainly one of those shades of gray moments and he's you know even though we really haven't seen much of the fallout emotional fallout of that on screen i'd like to think that this is a piece of that is you know maybe he's not being the nicest guy and it would be better if he were to rise above it but this is a little bit of him trying to get something back for the crap that he had to go through in part because of bester in great part yeah the only other the only other thing i can think of is uh sheridan you know being dramatic about it just to drive home the point that well frankly bester owes him one now Mm-hmm. And Sheridan knows a lot of what um, the Psychor was planning. He knows from Garibaldi about, you know, the, the 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 virus that was going to be used against the telepaths, that there's almost certainly going to be a war coming, that Bester's been putting his own people in positions on Earth. So, you know, if this is one thing Sheridan can do to hold over Bester's head a little bit in the future, then he may be setting that up too. 
I may be a little harsh on Sheridan, too, because he does say at one point, he does reference Anna and says, right. look, I know what it means to lose someone and find them again and then lose them again. And the implication there is I wouldn't I wouldn't do that to you, or at least I'd understand what I would be doing to you. But I feel like we're glossing over the most important thing that happens in this conference room scene and the one that follows it, which is four key elements that dominate this episode. And that's marble, wood paneling, uh, <laughs> horizontal blinds and plants. <laughs> Because this, the set dressing in this episode always gets me because it's like they're saying, how do we show that we're on Earth and not in space? And, it's, <laughs> and, and the way this is lit, I actually really love it, the, whether it's the, yes. the director of photography or, or, or whether it's Tony Dow. But like this whole scene is like afternoon or, or maybe, it's, maybe it's morning, but the sun is low enough that the light is coming through those horizontal blinds and illuminating the character's faces. So like Sheridan sits in that chair and he's got lines running across his face. It is a very purposeful, stylized lighting s- system. And then outside the windows, are it's like every rented ficus in Los Angeles is out there <laughs> to just say, natural environment, it's not a space station. Is, it, is right? that natural for Geneva? I mean, I, I have no I idea what the natural <laughs> flora and fauna of Geneva are, but that didn't strike me as Geneva. It's a well, lot of plants. Well, this is 2260 something. So by then, let's go. By then, global yeah. warming, and it's a it's yeah. a jungle. Yeah. Okay, I got it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it is. I I can make fun of it because it's like so like and, and the and the marble and the wood paneling in the offices too. It's very very much they're trying to say this is not Babylon Five, right? This looks mm-hmm. different. Yep. We're in a very different location than we've ever been in before, and I think it's pretty effective. I mean, and of course it would just be boring conference rooms because what what else? I mean, it's a government. They got boring conference rooms. That's how it is. But the lighting thing, the lighting choice, I think is actually really fun. And I notice it every time they sit at the ends of that table and they both got the like the light yeah. slashing across them. It's really cool looking and and uh, not not like Babylon 5. Yeah, we're seeing the literal shades of gray like across these two characters, which is <laughs> it is on point. Um and and speaking of of shades of gray and uh, as we have been of, of of giving threats and stuff, let's let's move on to talking about the the conference scene. We've got um you know, the teleconference Sheridan giving his speech and Ivanova uh, not Ivanova, sorry. Uh Delen giving her speech, which I don't know, to me, especially with the music behind it, felt incredibly ominous and slightly threatening. And then it, there's a military flyover by White Stars in the middle of it. I've, to me, that rang very, very <sighs> weird. Did anybody else have the same reaction? I oh, yeah. love oh, yeah. it. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. Chip, it's, it's amazing. Why. Okay. Speak why? softly and show <laughs> yes, that Chip. big stick. Speak softly and show that stick. Delenn is saying all of the right things inside that conference room about um, cooperation, about choice, uh, all of these things in her speech. She's hitting every single last note that she needs to to make this new interstellar alliance look like a wonderful thing, a beneficial thing, a non-threatening thing. But you people let yourselves get twisted over by this ambitious despot who assassinated your president and then took over power. So let's just remind you guys that we have the backing if we need it. So yeah, yeah. Speak softly, big stick. Classic. Yeah, see, to me, that felt like an echo of of uh, President Clark and Nightwatch and the, the Ministry of Peace, because the words that they're saying, you know, sound really nice. But when you sort of like 
get a little bit closer, it's like, oh, that's creepy. Um, so I, I really just felt like this came off as rather authoritarian. If it had not had the martial sounding music behind it, I think I would have liked it a lot better. Even hmm. with the flyover, which I still think hmm. was overkill. Our, our white star's really supposed to, like, shouldn't that, I feel like that's a bad thing for the Earth's atmosphere, I guess. Maybe maybe they don't give <laughs> off emissions. I don't know. So if you go back was... to, um, if you go back to Sheridan manipulating the League of Non-Aligned Worlds into uh, signing up, uh, at the same time that JMS is bent over backwards to portray our heroes as the good, good heroes and the defenders of democracy, JMS tries to have his cake and eat it too by saying that you can't just be holier than thou about your political beliefs and expect to win. You've got to make the tough decisions and sometimes you've got to be manipulative. And that is exactly what happens here. You you can take Delin at her word because we know Delin and she is at her word here that the role of the Rangers and the role of the Interstellar Alliance, she's basically telling Britain to come back to the European Union. And <laughs> Earth is a whipped puppy. They're wary. They've been through a lot of trauma. It's a plan- planetary post-traumatic stress disorder here. And here's that real politic in about the demonstration that all of all, all of the league worlds that are banding together in this interstellar alliance are going to have all kinds of resources at their disposal the the flyover is a scary demonstration of power even as delin has just gone through this uh laundry list of the, the ways that the rangers will not abuse that power yeah, and then um, they go and abuse it right there. To me, that's just hmm. It's not. It's I not abusing am, it. It's just. Yeah. It's just a nice little flyover. I, mean, I, just, I don't think it. bringing your warships into the atmospheric space of a planet is is a nice little flyover. I think that that's entering the the airspace of the yeah. major power center of a planet that is supposed to be. You know, we're saying it's going to be left on its own. I feel. I, I don't feel like that's okay. Well, I agree completely with Erica here. Um, I think you can't have it both ways. And I, I, it is impossible to look, unless you want to headcanon it and say like, oh, they already like told the Joint Chiefs like, well, we're oh, going no. to fly some ships by during the speech and it's going to look great and uh, no problem. It's just, it's going to be good. Because what, what they're saying here is, I, I, politically, I look at this and I think what you want Earth to do is come willingly into the alliance. Exactly. If you put your boot on their neck and say, you have to join us, you have no other choice, that is a bad way to start a relationship and it's going to go bad. And I don't think the text of Babylon 5 suggests that's the case, but we've got this situation where Delenn is like, no, no, we're totally open. By the way, our giant fleet of brand new warships mm-hmm. just flew over your capital. And then... I also have a problem with it because although it's kind of spectacular, like they're not like shooting off fireworks or something to say, yay, it's we, we are going to show force here. The next scene when they talk to the president is the politics part, which is, no, you really actually want to join us because we're going to give you this stuff. Like you don't need a military flyover. I think the military flyover is a step too far because it is it, it's not necessary. And in fact, is counter because like. In the real world, if that president takes that deal and she says, Luchenko says, we're going to sign up, everybody's going to think that she did it because she was cowed by the military force and not what she really knows, which is they're going to get artificial gravity and all sorts of other stuff Mm -hmm. as a part of this deal. So it's always hit me the wrong way, too, Erica. Mm -hmm. Same thing. It's like just a big misstep. And I think about modern politics and think like this is the seed of Earth 
uh, ultimately l- brexiting from the well, interstellar alliance. Well, Earth already so, did that, yeah. though. Um, my my last defense on this, and I, I, I hear and I hear and and kind of agree with everything that you're saying, but I don't see that it would have gone any other way because Earth had already like put together bad deals with the with the Centauri. It was dealing with the shadows on the side. And Clark rose to power and consolidated his power based on isolationist and anti-alien sentiments. So I think that uh, the league and the league probably had a lot invested in pushing back against that. That's interesting, but, but Chip, you because don't... you basically just made the the my last argument for me in that all of all of this happened because of this isolationist anti-alien stuff. And the way that they choose to combat it is by showing that they're big, scary aliens that you should be afraid of. I feel like that's incredibly self-defeating. And I mean, uh, to me, the show of military force was the fact that Sheridan won. Yes, he had Earth ships to help him, but he was also using those same white stars that just did the flyby. I think I think it's pretty clear to anybody who's paying attention on Earth that that the Alliance has the military might because Sheridan, Sheridan didn't even use all of it. He just used this one little corner of it, the white stars and the Earth fleet, and still managed to take down Earth without even touching any of the other races' power. So I, I just felt like it was completely unnecessary except to just be a great big jerk. So let's say you've been listening to or and watching fake uh, fake news ISN, not the real ISN that they mm. just let out of the prisons, and you've heard all this stuff about Sheridan uh, collaborating with aliens and all that. Sheridan goes to the trouble of like, no, 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 we're only going to use Earth Alliance ships to take back Earth, and and it's just going to be humans in Earth Alliance ships. Great. What's the first thing that happens when that's done? Oh, all the aliens come in their alien ships and say we're we're part of a big thing, and you better join. It's like, mm, no, mm, bad idea, bad idea. I have more to say about this, but it will have to. To wait until after the jump gate. <laughs> that is fair. That is very fair. Well, let's. Um, speaking of of all of those aliens, hey, they're they're an alliance now with with a capital A. There's there's no non uh, in front of that. That's pretty <laughs> exciting, right? Yeah. Uh, Why wouldn't they align before? Why couldn't they align? Come on, align a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know that. They needed a new reason to to align yep. with the Shadow War being gone, um, you know, presenting this as more of a, you know, we need all of the big players in the game on the same page. Look what happened when we let Earth go off by its lonesome and uh, isolate itself. Um, so they had a new reason to do this and, you know, therefore reinvented themselves to try to create it um, with a lot more strength to it. Mm-hmm. And I think, I mean... I don't know that Earth going off on its own was that big of a deal to anybody, except for the fact that Sheridan was taken taken prisoner and he was the one that helped everybody through and, you know, sort of was able to help them win the Shadow War and, you know, was able to help them against this invisible enemy uh, that allowed them, uh, th- that convinced everybody that they should let the White Stars patrol. You know, it, it's, I mean, I hate to say cult of personality, but there's, Sheridan does seem to be at the center of the reason for pulling this together because, yes. I mean, nobody, I don't think anybody really cares that much about Earth. To be honest, I think that they're I think that they're worried about Earth being a problem down the road. Other yeah. than that, you're right. Um, I think that they they pulled together to continue to fight and to rescue Sheridan. Um, 
but they were already sort of an aligned league of non-aligned worlds um, to begin with. So this is sort of formalizing it and thinking that they're going to get something out of it with having their uh, have, having the Rangers opened up to non-humans and non-Mimbari and things like that. You know, it's, they 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 see an option for for to get paid free trade um and mutual defense and all this other stuff so you know that's um it's an it's an optimistic time in the galaxy and they'll just buy into it yeah it's it, as Sheridan says uh, to the to the loud general. He's talking about how they've been sort of working on them bit by bit for quite a while. So it's mm. it it. While it is a neat moment to see Londo laughing at Delenn making history and, you know, the air being thin and all of that, uh, it is something that has been in the works for a while, you know, both on screen and just off screen. And so to, to me, it felt perfectly natural. This was a thing that they have been rolling toward for a long time. Yeah. Um, but I still like I still like that scene um, with any time we get Delenn just kind of being like smug as can be, <laughs> which she totally <laughs> is there. Yeah. I like it. Yeah. Uh, and let's not forget, even though they don't make a big explicit point of it in this episode, you know, Londo and Jakar are side by side, perfectly aligned on this. And even though Delenn's sitting in between them, so they don't have to sit next to each other, to have Londo and Jakar, who have been at each other's throats for four years, to both be, uh, to both fully embrace this, that's, that's, only helpful in getting the other worlds aligned. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you may say, you know, sitting between them so they don't have to sit next to each other. And yet, they're actually spending pretty much this entire episode hanging out. I mm-hmm. mean, even even when they're left when they're left alone and I I really I like the the line that that Lando gives toward the beginning um talking about how they're developing a very strange relationship, I think. Um and he <laughs> he, he kind of likes it. Uh, it just feels very natural to me as we have seen the complete evolution of these two characters uh, on their own and together. It it's nice to see them see them side by side at the end here and yes their governments do oppose each other in most things but when the fact that they're coming together on this makes uh, makes it much easier for the rest of the planets to fall in line yep. well anything else about the uh the new alliance um or londo and jakar um before um, we talk about some of the more personal fallout i feel like we have to talk about more about londo and jakar because um as Londo says, their relationship is getting stranger <laughs> all the time. We have a very strange uh, uh, sexual performance monologue yes. by Londo. Oh, I blocked that out. Already. I'd forgotten that too. <laughs> and then, of course, Jakar's peeping eye later on. So what is going on? I just I just got tickled by the fact. I didn't really notice it until the second, the second time I was watching. But they're wearing glitter. They're wearing glitter in that mm. last scene. There's glitter in Lonzo's there hair, glitter bomb. and there's glitter oh, all yeah. over from the wedding. Yeah. Exactly, it's from the wedding. Yeah, it's, it's, it's as, hysterical. As Jakar munches raw rice. Yeah. <laughs> yes, um, but yeah, <laughs> it is called rice. I, I love that too. That, no, they are they are a great comedy duo. It is hilarious, and the moment I I, I think because there is this unpleasant sort of like I am never premature, and then that leads Londo off into his thing. I feel like that, and the fact that Jakar has his peeping eye in Sheridan and Delenn's bedroom at the end of the episode, which is 
yeah, that's super creepy, is the the line, though, where Orlando's like, this is getting weird, is right there. So it's like, okay, at least they acknowledge. They're leading uh, into they it. They hung a lantern <laughs> on it. Yep. Well, Jakar has been a perv from day one, from the gathering. It's true. Very true. But Very even true. the greatest of philosophers have their uh, flaws. Uh, I suspect this will not be included maybe in the Apocrypha of the Book of Jakar. But, oh, sorry. That's a spoiler. That's a spoiler, isn't it? We should take that out. Sorry. Take that out, Chip. Sinclair is failing. Oh, no, we already did that. Uh, so, yeah. So my point is, uh, you know, maybe this is, uh, is Jakar is, is uh, doing some great stuff, but he's still a flawed character and we see it boy do we he sees it too yeah for the for the record <laughs> for the record jms was saying uh online uh back in season three that jakar was writing what would one day become the book of jakar so i don't consider oh, okay. that a big spoiler the um also have you ever tried to like um take a web like a security camera like a web security camera and point it in the right direction i don't think that eye is pointed right but yeah and, and it's round it could roll around on the he may have just had a really great silent view of like the ceiling in sheridan's <laughs> i suspect so. yeah, he might have seen like you know some clothing being tossed like up into the air but not actually gotten also because it's just sitting out there he can't blink so it's a constant feed to his brain for the entire <laughs> night I don't that's know how the he's way he sleep. likes it <laughs> oh god <laughs> <sighs> yes these comedy pals and you know I wish that I would have asked Steven um, how he felt about Londo and Jakar in this episode specifically that wasn't one of the things he said um, after the episode was done well maybe we'll have him on for a season wrap up and we can ask him because I know his complaint all the way through season one was that these are just the comedy aliens and I I really am interested to know what he thinks now at this point that they have they have sort of circled back to being the comedy aliens but i feel like it's in a very different way so i I hope he's okay with it compare and contrast these two with uh being stuck in an elevator well the the they're the comedy duo but we also now know that jakar is basically a leader of his people who has brought them into freedom after a terrible thing and is writing uh, down his wisdom in a book and things like that and and londo is going to be the emperor very soon right so that puts a little extra weight on the comedy stylings of londo and jakar <laughs> totally does um well speaking of uh of couples uh pairing off like londo and jakar <laughs> <laughs> we... We have a lot of that. Very strange relationship. Yeah, yep. very becoming stranger all the time. <laughs> we have quite a bit of that in this episode. We have, um, we have Michael and Lise. We get that nice little scene with them in bed, which is sort of just like a capper on the Michael Garibaldi story here at the at the end of the season. Um, I I couldn't quite well, tell. He rescued if they had... the girl, so he has to get the girl. Yeah, I didn't. I couldn't tell if they had gotten married or if they were about to get married. But it's it just I don't know. To me, it was just very sweet, and I really really loved. The direction of going from the 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 conference room, the the speaking, Sheridan's talking about freeing Mars, and then the president's speaking, and then it switches to the TV feed, the ISN mm-hmm. like feed in their room, and then Michael clicks it off, and like that was a great transition. I just mm-hmm. love that. Yeah, there were several great transitions. In this. I can't mm-hmm. I can't remember where I saw it, but Jerry Doyle once told the story that whatever it is that. Um, Denise Gentile uh, whispers in his ear at the end of that scene was so filthy that he barely could contain himself. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> wow. I, well, we watched it. We always watch it with subtitles on, um, even though the subtitles are not always exact. It obviously didn't subtitle everything that she said, but the first thing that she whispers is actually subtitled. And she says, let me tell you something. And you can actually hear her mm-hmm. saying, let me tell you something. And then it goes off into to something else. So, mm-hmm. so who knows what that something else might have been. I have an interesting uh, director's cut comment here, which is that in the director's cut, uh, they fade from the ISN to a shot that is pulling back from the bed. And he's got his arm around her and and says something like, they did it. I can't believe they did it. And that's it. And then obviously they shot it both ways because they also shot this long push-in shot Mm -hmm. where they have the whole conversation and it ends with her pulling the covers up over both of them. And I don't know whether that was a function of time or whether they wanted to like judge later whether it was a little too racy. Um, But it's interesting that in the director's cut version that was done, you know, a few weeks before uh, or maybe even just a week before the producers kind of went back and did did their final re-edit on it. they used a totally different take that was just like same same actors in the same pose, but it was a very short just pushing in on them as Garibaldi goes, they did it. It's great. And then like that was it. And they replaced it with this much more substantial tag of them being together and he, he's going to marry her for her money and she whispers in his ear, and we, which is, I got to say, in the feeling of this being a series finale, it's a this is the scene for that. This is mm-hmm. the this is the Garibaldi gets a happy ending. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Yep. Very sweet. And of course, we don't get to see it, which as a hardcore Delenn and John Shipper, I was a little sad that we didn't get to see their wedding. But I could, you know, for time wise and then budgetary reasons, I can't even imagine what that would have what that would have had to look like to actually make it appropriate for people to people of this, you know, sort of stature in the world to show their wedding. I don't think they could have done it on a B5 budget and and have us not watch it and cringe. Exactly. Erica, I've told you before, if I've ever been a shipper of anything in fandom ever, which is maybe not true, but if I have been, it is of John and Delenn. And I kind of like that we don't see the wedding because it feels almost right. Like yeah. how would it's too it's too big a deal. It would have to be very long. And like we weren't invited. We we're just fans. They're famous. <laughs> it was a small, just very close acquaintances, small on a spaceship. Mm-hmm. We're not invited. And, you know, on the end, like like Jakar, we get to see them afterwards. So, you know, yeah, it's, I mean, it, it's the kind of thing that if if they had not just you know, I, I'm assuming, you know, taken off with John's dad over to Minneapolis to, you know, see his mom, you know, very quickly, very briefly. Um, hey, let's, you know, take care of this, go to a justice of the peace, because if they wait to do it as um, a full, huge ceremony, mm-hmm. then, yeah, uh, it totally distracts from the things they want to do next. So Look, we're all invited to the reception on Babylon 5 in a week. So yeah, sure. you, you can you can congratulate them, bring a present, you can congratulate them then. I can't believe we haven't talked about Rance Howard. Rance Howard has this wonderful scene mm-hmm. where he's reunited with uh, with his son, with uh, with John Sheridan here. And I love I love Rance Howard. I love him as um, as Sheridan's dad. And it is a fantastic little scene with him and John and Delenn, where she's basically welcomed to the family, which mm-hmm. is wonderful. Although I will point out, there is a fantastic line that is cut from the episode that was in the director's cut, mm-hmm. which is she she apologizes. She says, I'm sorry, I'm not. Basically, she's like, I'm different. I'm not what you would probably have expected for John. And Rance Howard's response is, different how? 
mm-hmm. and then they hug and it's like oh my god my heart melted and it's not in the episode it's too bad but it's in my head canon from now on <laughs> there you go john's dad is great oh yeah, yeah. me too yeah he that is... also that ahead, director's John. cut also well the director's cut that you know we got to see as well also shows um why Rye Rance Howard's line is um, after hearing Mr. President and wondering, okay, what's going on? That's another long story because in the bit that got cut, Sheridan is has to explain it's a long story. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I, I agree that Rance Howard is just I, I feel like every time we see him, it it really just makes me understand how Sheridan got to be the character that he is because you know we talk about him being like the great big puppy and sort of the cornball kind of guy and like of course a guy with a sweet down-home dad like this is gonna have a little bit of corniness at his heart like it's just it is perfect it's perfect casting i adore it and yeah and getting to see getting to see um Delent become a part of the family and just sort of be welcomed in by by him even even without that line although oh my god that line that is yeah that is great uh even without that it just it just he he sparkles as he interacts with both her and his son and it is it is a beautiful thing but you know puts his arms his arms around both of them as they walk mm-hmm. as they walk down the hall away from us it's just that's a that's a great moment that was a really great moment Yep. He sparkles even without having glitter all over him. So that's <laughs> he, does. Uh, he doesn't need that's it. That's nice. Can we talk about another another sort of couple that happens here? We've got um we've got live Ivanova and dead Marcus uh, and live Stephen, which is sort of Stephen's coda scene is her, his mm-hmm. scene with Ivanova and that's followed up with the scene with Delenn and Lanier mm-hmm. that yes. follows directly from it and those are both um those are both pretty dramatic in the in the director's cut there's a the whole other scene that is not in the episode where franklin like shows up at the station and is told like we're sorry we didn't know whatever and 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 then ivanova's gone and in the final cut it's just like look steven just is he finds her and they have that conversation and it is um not to keep bringing up the director's cut but it's interesting to see that in the director's cut it gets back and forth and in the producer's cut the final cut it's one long shot on claudia christian mm-hmm. for most of that and I will say, I think this is the single best piece of work Claudia Christian did into the in the series. It is a spectacular scene of her being completely emotionally devastated and unloading on her friend who has finally shown up so that she can talk about what just happened with her and Marcus and her being ready to die and hearing this English voice saying, don't go, it must be God. No, it's Marcus. Uh, such a great scene. It's just amazing. Complete. A- a- amazing. 100% agree. Yeah. Claudia Christian, It 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 is a high point. Absolute high point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I kept putting off talking about it, but we really do need... <laughs> Yeah. We really do need to address the <laughs> the sad bits because I I don't I, I'm a weepy person I don't find myself but crying at Babylon Five very often but this that scene every single time even even this yeah. time after having seen it a bunch of times before just just gets me I I can't watch it without just kind of falling apart a little bit because yeah her performance her performance is stellar and it is written so perfectly for this character. And mm-hmm. the and Stephen too, his his reactions yes. to her yes. um, are are so perfectly him, and so perfectly he, you know his bedside manner turned up to you know to eleven, but then back down because he knows when it's time to not be you know huge. It, uh, 
I just I love that scene so much. Shannon, how did you, how did you like that one? No, I was agreeing with you that you know not only is Claudia Christian just hitting every single note right, pulling apart in three minutes. Um, you know, not only her relationship with Marcus, but her entire psyche, her past relationships, of which we have only seen a couple in this series. That you know that that this is someone who firmly believed that she was never going to find somebody to match her and therefore refused to believe it when Marcus shows up and now it's too late. And she encapsulates all of that anguish and all of that agony into her scenes. And Richard Biggs is stellar in yeah. being the sounding board. And as you said, the the careful balance of bedside manner and true friend uh, to support her and let her get it all out um, and get it expressed so she can start to mourn properly. Yeah, and so, yeah. one and the script and Claudia's performance together combine, she's emotionally devastated, but she is still Susan Ivanova. You can yeah. still see strength underneath. She is upset, but she's not broken. Yep, and she has always she's, been one to sort of end things, you know... To, to cover things over a little bit with a sardonic joke. And, you know, she's mm-hmm. as, as wacky as that line about, you know, at least I could have boffed him is, it is absolutely perfect. It's the kind of thing that she would say. It's delivered so perfectly. And then you get Stephen's sort of reaction of just like, did, did you just say boffed? <laughs> I mean, just, it is, it is the, the perfect distillation, distillation of her as a character in this one scene. I love it. And, you know, um, I, I mean, I'm sure we've all had moments in our lives. I was thinking back to um, after my dad's funeral, we all went back to my parents' house and had dinner and it was a bunch of relatives there. And there was a lot of laughter. And I, I was thinking about that when I watched this scene because there's a real truth in the fact that, that somebody who has suffered a loss and has been as devastated as this and is there talking about it with a friend. Like, you don't, in my experience, you know, laughter still comes, but it is this laughing through the tears this bit you know life goes on and you still laugh about things and you're laughing to remember and you're laughing with friends in order to hold on to something and that that the, the boffed line I, I roll my eyes at it every time but the fact is it gets to a beautiful place which is uh Stephen and Ivanova um having that moment of connection of like there there's a little light at the end of the tunnel they're going to get through this it's not any less sad but at least there's something that we can smile about and and that's that's a hard thing i think to evoke in drama and this scene really does an amazing job of it mm-hmm. yeah and um, I, there's also the two go, the twofold you know idea behind you know at least i could have boffed him like meaning that from from her own standpoint in that at least i could have opened up a little bit and you know given it a try and also the fact that he you know reveals to her that he's a virgin like she could have she could have at least right. you know yeah. given right. him that before he died because he he ended up dying a virgin as well it's uh it makes it extra sad <sighs> but also extra i don't know just amusing at the end too like she's she is still thinking about him as a whole person which is really kind of nice I'm curious how all of you guys, I mean, I don't know how much you've talked about it. Um, I, I listen to every episode of this show, but I also am out of sync now. By uh, I'm, out, I'm unstuck in time, sorry, because <laughs> we're recording ahead of what's been posted. Um, what your feeling is about the Marcus Ivanova relationship, because the problem I have with it, is, and I've always had this, is that I always read it as he's really interested in her and she's not interested. And to be honest, I also, uh, given her past relationships, I also 
uh, read it as he's not her type, you know, at all. And so it's nice that he's interested in her. And I think she appreciates how nice a person he is. But I never really read it as that there was any hope for a real relationship there from her perspective. And this scene, I always read into it using that uh, that perspective. I always read this as being her regret that she could have... She is regretful that she didn't open herself up to other possibilities, but I feel like it's tinged with the fact that, that at least my read of it is that she couldn't ultimately give him what he wanted. And I don't know if I'm supposed to feel that way, but that's sort of how I feel is that is that she could have thrown him a bone and boffed him once, but that she, you know, some of the regret here I feel like is not, I regret not trying with Marcus because maybe we would have had something. It's more like I regret being closed off as a person and not giving Marcus uh, an experience, which I don't know. I don't know if you guys have a more uh, charitable read on the chances that Susan would have actually been interested in Marcus. I have a much more I, charitable read on that. Yeah, um, I maybe. think that, uh, and I think that part of it is JMS sort of telling the story of the nice guy who won't give up, which is a little a little creepy when you unpack that. <laughs> mm-hmm. But uh, but the resistance that Susan demonstrates to Marcus, I think is most frequently read as her overcompensating and uh, and and having her shields up. And if you go to Amazing Stories and a uh, short story that JMS oh wrote called Space Time and the Incurable Romantic, mm. yeah, I, JMS seemed to think that he was writing a love story. Yeah, well, I think... Oh, go ahead, Jenny. Well, I was just going to say, uh, my, my take on it is not so much... Um, Yes, Susan has her shields up and, you know, given her history, she's got reason to have her shields up. I I get my take on it is a bit of um, if there had been more time for them, they would have naturally eventually gotten together. Basically, Susan needed more time and circumstances yanked that from her um, because even if Marcus had not done what he did, she was going to die. So that that's um, a layer for me that uh that made it more poignant for me to me it was it was kind of halfway in between both both sides of that it was just that she never she never gave it any kind of a chance and she regretted not giving it a chance to see if that would have eventually worked out for her that's fair one of the reasons that i think that is because um in the previous episode or the one before where she and and Marcus are on the way to the big battle and she points out that she has learned some Minbari. So now mm-hmm. she knows what Marcus said right. to her. Her reaction to him and the smile that she gives him makes me think that if circumstances had not ended the way they did, that would have maybe been the first sort of crack in her facade to actually make her think about it as right. more of a possibility as opposed to just being like oh Marcus you know he's so sweet and I do want to stand up a little bit for Marcus um, at least at this point I'm not talking about that story which I have not read um, but the the nice guy who won't give up 
to me, only gets creepy when they are asking for something and demanding something in return. And she very clearly states when she's talking about him and crying that he didn't ask anything from her at all. Like right. He asked so little. He was just willing to be there for her with no strings attached, nothing required, because that's that is the kind of person that he was. So so at this point here, I don't I don't feel like there was anything anything creepy about his nice guy relationship. And I do think that while who knows it may not have been a successful relationship if if they would have gotten a, a chance to eventually really try it but i do think that that she is is regretting not opening herself up to that possibility to even find out because like she said she she perhaps saw what would have actually been really perfect for her um which is yeah he's not her type but everybody she's ever been with before has been her type and has been a colossal failure so (laughs) so maybe it was type yeah maybe it was worth giving that a try and now she'll never have that chance so that's how yeah and and i agree with what erica says that you know there have been things along the way the thing that stands out to me most other than her you know telling him by the way you know now i know what you said to me in mambari but farther back um you've got that first instance of him trying to sort of like really break the ice with her to get to a working relationship with one another he brings the big flow chart in to, to yes. show her the, the organization and how he fits and he makes her laugh and you know she's like and and that's all at the time that's all he wanted to do was to break the ice make her laugh make her relax just a little bit yeah. around him and he succeeds and once he succeeded he leaves and so he is giving her you know even as he tries to accomplish these steps he is giving her space and, you know, and it builds from there and their working relationship becomes a very solid working relationship. And then we start getting to that touch of romance. And then, of course, it all gets cut off. Yep. Well, speaking of getting cut off, we should we should cut ourselves off and jump into spoiler space pretty quick. I do want to quickly touch on um, the other thing that Jason, you mentioned is we do get that scene after this with uh, with Delenn and Lanier when, um, you know, it, Ivanova ends with the the heart crushing line that all love is unrequited, all of it. Yeah. And we have Lanier saying that and Delenn not only refuting that, but actually reaching out her hand and touching Lanier's face as she says it and then walks away and he has this look and i have to say that as watching this with steven he he was so not happy with that it's like how dare you stop leading him on i don't trust you so his, she even his lingers that. a little bit on her way out yeah mm-hmm. yes so so steven was very not happy with that how did how did that scene hit you guys oh goodness ah <laughs> uh, yeah it's super. It's it's super sad. I I I am not a fan of this whole Lanier is obsessed with Delenn and Delenn doesn't know it kind of thing. That there's the vibe we've gotten all this time. Like it. This the Marcus's pursuit of Ivanova never made me uncomfortable. This makes me uncomfortable, and this is like worse. This is like she doesn't understand, or he, or or the way she phrases it makes him read into it things that she doesn't really intend. Or does it she? Is, I don't uh, even know. I don't know. It's so sad. And to use Ivanova's line, which is super heartbreaking, and she's it's Delenn being Delenn. She's trying to turn it around. No, like we all no. When you love somebody, love comes back to you is what she's saying. But to to Lanier, it's heartbreaking, right? Because he feels love, great love. For for Delenn and she feels love for him but it's not the same mm-hmm. and oh and then it's she brutal. goes off it's and just gets a married <laughs> like right oh. right yeah that's a thing 
Oh. Bless her heart. Delin, Delin believes in a lot of different kinds of love. And that's the card that she's always going to play in this sort of situation. And it's not exactly helpful to Lanier. Mm-hmm. But boy, does he look, you know, starstruck and happy at the end. Oh. So, <sighs> yeah. Well, um, I'll just do a quick Stephen check-in. I don't have a lot to say because, as I mentioned earlier, mostly he was just completely gobsmacked that there's anything after this. Uh <laughs> He just like it ends and he just says, surely that's the last episode of the series that had such finality to it. Um, he just, you know, everybody's happy and peaceful and even Jakar and Londo. Um, so it was it, that was most of what he had to say, although he had some some great words for Tony Dow, who is just such a good director with actors every time he is. He's an actor's director, uh, which we had noted before when when Tony Dow directed previously so so mostly steven is just now curious to see what the heck is what the <laughs> heck is gonna happen happen after this how is there another episode steven's like the name of the next episode should be we haven't been canceled um which i think would be hilarious he's not wrong but uh, <laughs> so so yeah i don't really have anything else to say on the steven front so i think that that's probably uh, a good time for us to to jump ahead but before i assign our homework jason tell the nice folks at home again where they can find you online uh sure i write things at sixcolors.com i podcast about various pop culture things including with these fine people at the incomparable.com and i also talk about technology things and related subjects at relay.fm Yep. So your homework, should you choose to accept it, uh, yes, there really is another episode, uh, is called The Deconstruction of Falling Stars. How's that for a JMS title? Oh, to be a fly on the wall when Steven sees that title card. (laughs) (laughs) I know. Uh, so, So listeners, please do join us on social media at B5 Audio Guide on Twitter and Tumblr and at b5audioguide.com. Let us know how you feel about this app. Um, just be sure to save your musings about what comes next for the spoiler-friendly threads so that our new unspoiled listeners can remain that way. And if you do want to remain unspoiled, please press stop on your podcatcher now because we are about to spoil the ever-loving heck out of what is to come as soon as we pass through this here jump gate. Spoiler alert, there are no more episodes. (laughs) (laughs) This is the first of four series finale episodes. Yep. Seriously, you could have ended the show on this one. You could end the show next week with the deconstruction of falling stars. You could end the show with... Click, 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 click on uh, Lurker's Guide. Objects at rest. (laughs) Yes. Or you can Fitting end the, the show at Sleeping in Light. All mm-hmm. of the above are perfectly valid last episodes of Babylon 5. <laughs> Man, we had so many arguments about where to start. Uh, please let's not argue about what's the best one to end on. <laughs> Uh, as, as for spoiler space, honestly, pretty much everything else that happens in the entirety of Babylon 5 could be covered in this spoiler space segment because it sets up everything. Everything. Um, everything. Yeah, so let's let's dip into some of it without going too crazy because you know we're going to be watching them. Right? Um, because, can I? Yeah, uh, there, can there I, are more episodes coming. Can I uh, lead off with my parting shot on the White Star flyby? 
Oh, yes, I am very interested to hear what, what your mm, reasoning is here, Me Chip. too. So you all are exactly right, of course, because uh, Earth is going to continue to be kind of xenophobic. And as we will see in the very next episode, Earth is going to pull out of the Alliance and be kind of suspicious about all this stuff going on. Plus, next season, the Alliance is going to turn on Centauri Prime and not exactly behave itself. It's just, it, this, is, this is going to be messy. And I kind of, I kind of see the White Star flyby as not both just a completely understandable, if not necessarily productive, real politic, but also a bit of a, um, a, a, a bit of a hint of just how messy the founding of the Interstellar Alliance actually is, and how um, messy the ne- the next year or so's worth of stories are going to be. It's it's not utopia by a long shot. And JMS's point in this is is he he's got two he's got two themes I think in Babylon Five. One of them he says explicitly in this episode, and he said that he hated writing it. It's Sheridan's speech about consequences and taking responsibility and all this stuff. JMS is JMS said in the script books that he hated writing this because he wanted another season to just explain that rather than have a character deliver a speech on it. But the mm. other the other theme that JMS has is that building the future is messy and you're going to make mistakes along the way. Uh I think the White Star flyby is one of those mistakes. I, I have a question for you guys who who know the timeline better than I do, and I feel like, yeah, earlier we certainly couldn't talk about it that way. The that scene works very well if you want to see it as as foreshadowing for what is to come. That is perfect. However, I think in this episode, sort of the feeling of of ending and tying things up in sort of triumph, it it sticks out like a sore thumb, and it's sort of like a sour note in the mm. middle of all of that for me. Did when the time came for them to do this final edit, which, as we know, is different from the director's cut, did they know that they were going to have a fifth season? Or was this a choice that was made thinking that this was still going to be like, you know, wrapping things up? I get the feeling that uh, what we saw was did wind up being the final edit. We've got um, the scene at the end as the ISN reporter is saying... Um, you know, Sheridan's yes. going to be president and Ivanova is going to take over the shakedown crews of this warlock class ship. The original cut had had her still having a choice because they didn't know yeah. yet for sure yeah. that mm-hmm. Claudia Christian was gone. So you've got in the director's pre in the, in the director's previews um, that Susan Ivanova um, has been recommended to uh, take over Babylon 5 as a new captain, but um, might also wind up um, taking uh, a ship instead. Yeah, if you've ever wondered why that voiceover, if you ever noticed that all of a sudden the ISN announcer's voice gets very fast and she starts to read dialogue really quickly, it's because they rewrote that dialogue in order to set up where they knew season five was going once season five was set. And they they said, Ivanova's gone. And so if you were watching along, you got to this episode and they were like, Ivanova's gone. And you're like, oh, okay. And that was how she was written out of the show was basically in a voiceover here in Rising Star. All right. In that case, I am I am much more okay with the specifically the production choices too of that of that sequence with the with a flyover because as I said before, that music was super intense and very martial and uh, and had that been the last episode, I would have I think taken yeah. great umbrage with that 
that choice. It's still it still to me sticks out and doesn't feel like it fits in the episode, just the the celebratory feeling of the episode, but but I do think that it does make sense if you're looking you know, forward. I feel like it was like not to relitigate this, but I feel it was like JMS wanted something like fireworks and he was like, yeah. "Let's put on a big display. Mm. We'll have him fly over." I'm not sure he really thought uh, that it might come across as sinister because I don't feel like it are, plays that way. There are some way. fireworks in, in the scene. Yeah. 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 It's celebratory, yeah. right? Except, and, and maybe if there had been some dialogue that was like, these are these are ships piloted by humans and they will be landing and showing you and you you as members of our alliance would have access to them. They're, they're, they're not the enemy. They're part of you. But none of that is in there either. It is really like, here we are. Uh, but your ship's right. You know, in, in terms of the future it actually pays off that way. Even if it wasn't intended, it does kind of pay off as, yeah, Earth's not all totally up for this. Yeah, Earth is, and, and deconstruction is all about that, you know, how long it takes. Earth keeps backsliding. Two steps forward, totally. one step back. Two steps forward, one step back. Two steps forward, whoops, great burn. Um, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. 50 steps back, start again. Send in the Send in the fake monks. Yeah, exactly. They're coming next week. The fake monks will be here next week. Get ready for it. Yeah, <laughs> Jason, you said being a fly on the wall when Steven sees the uh, sees the title card. I am just excited to see what the heck he thinks of the episode itself because it, so yeah yeah so the, the so I was I was there when they shot Sleeping Light, which is four twenty two production code, which ended up being basically five twenty two. Mm-hmm. Although we could nerds will argue about whether deconstruction of following stars is really. Uh, 501 <laughs> or 422. It doesn't really matter. It was shot as part of season five, though. It was the first episode of season five to be shot and inserted as season four. So so Sleeping Light, which this show is not, the, the, the audio guide to Babylon 5 is not going to talk about for 22 more episodes, was shot like, like I said, I was seeing them shoot that while they were editing this. It was just part of the production line. So at that moment, they literally thought that we were going to see the great space duck and the show was over. And that didn't happen. And so then they had to start moving things around, which is just, it's fascinating to think about that, that they were, they were, you know, they were done. And so this doesn't just feel like a, I mean, this is the series finale. This was, for all intents and purposes, JMS knew he wanted that flash forward 20 years later. Here's how it's going to end at where we find out where it's like the end credits of a movie where it's tell you tell uh, where all the characters ended up. <laughs> right, right. That's right. what, that's what he wanted. John the last Belushi becomes to be. a senator. Yeah. Right, mm-hmm. and he wanted he wanted uh, Sheridan, our sainted Sheridan, to be bodily assumed into heaven, and that's what happens. JMS turns out the lights, and it's the end of the show. And so this had to do all... I mean, it's funny for an episode that is not about advancing the plot in many ways and is slow at many points and ta- you know takes its time with character moments, that at the same time, this is kind of the, the hugely packed in some ways because there's a feeling like this is all we get. And so everybody's got to have a final moment mm-hmm. to shine because this is the last time we'll see them as they are now. And in the end, it turned out to only really be true for Ivanova. Yep. Yeah. I I, I can't wait for, I mean, wait, this is going to sound really bad. I was going to say, I can't wait for this podcast to be all over. I don't mean it <gasps> that way. 
I just mean that I can't wait for Steven to be able to dive into all of this really interesting behind the scenes stuff because that is his bread and butter and it is driving him crazy to not be able to (laughs) to really dig in behind the scenes. This was a second time where maybe second or third where he actually had me open up the lurker's guide and read him um, the the JMS speaks section or the safe ones thereof. Yeah, because because he just wanted to know about the production of this so much, um, and actually, pretty much everything on there was was pretty safe. So that was that was not um, not too problematic to to read to him. But he was he he just he gets very frustrated, and it's kind of cute. But I I can't wait for him. Basically, when we finish Babylon Five, I'm probably not going to see him for like a month because he's just going <laughs> to be reading the entire Lurker's Guide and you know watching as many outtakes as he can and all that kind of stuff. I'm going to have to go back to every single episode and put in chapter breaks. <laughs> no kidding. Right. So we can just jump right to it. Uh, that'll be that'll be delightful to watch that. Um, speaking of, of looking forward, uh, one of the things that did catch Steven's eye slash ear was the, the mention of the telepath and drock wars to come. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's a thing that happens, sort of. Yeah, yeah, uh, mm-hmm. ish, ish. And that was in the uh, that that is in the director's cut. So that was not dialogue changed for season five, which they could have done because they did it with with Ivanova. But that was there all along. There is a moment where um, that they cut out of her her voiceover at the end that says like, also there were great there were great wonders or something like <laughs> yeah. that. And that like that. That got cut, which was kind of weird, but um, but yeah, the telepath war and the Drock war, and and the telepath war is telegraphed in the scene with Bester, where um, right. you know, he says, "We'll we'll see, mm-hmm. we <laughs> we'll see." Yeah, the, yep. it's telegraphed in the scene. Uh, the groundwork for the war is laid, uh, and in the fifth season, and then everything happens off screen. We go to Crusade, and it <laughs> happened. It, 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 it's backstory. Yeah. And then the Drock War could be referring to some of the behind-the-scenes stuff with uh, Centauri Prime in the fifth season, but it's also more likely... I'm assuming that JMS had ideas for Crusade around that time, that he might be able to shop um, Crusade if he didn't get his deal worked out for a fifth season of Babylon 5. But uh, the Drock War begins in the whopping 13 episode limited series. Thank you, TNT. Mm-hmm. Without <laughs> resolution. Yeah. Sigh. Yep. Garibaldi is the uh, character who I feel like if they had had more time, they might have um, shot something else or used that other shot that they used in the, in the, um, where they're just in bed, and he says, hey, they did it, and that's it. If they had known that the fifth season was 100%, because Garibaldi's story is over. It, like, it's over. Yeah. This is the end for Garibaldi. He gets a happy ending. He and Elise are there. It's over. And then he has to come back. <laughs> he has to come back. <laughs> and he he does. It It just never quite feels the same. Although I'm okay with it not quite feeling the same, because after the trauma that he has been through, uh, I feel like him not he wouldn't be the same so I'm right I, totally it's it's just not super exciting to watch I guess yeah <laughs> well I mean it's the it's the it's the blessing and the curse of the fifth season is that things don't go well really for any of our heroes and it's 
Our friend Lynn Thomas uh, talks about one of the things she loves the most about Torchwood is that it's a group of people who are not very good at their jobs. Series five is our cast being not very good at their new jobs. <laughs> uh, yep. It's, I feel like j- for 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 JMS, uh, it makes sense, right? Because the, the the he ends the Shadow of Orlon conflict so early because he wants to make the point, and he said on the Lurker's Guide, he wants to make the point that the story doesn't end when the war is over because you got to pick up the pieces. And he wants to show the Civil War. And it's the reason why Rising Star exists is because he could have ended the series with them coming to Earth and saving it and yay, everybody lived happily ever after. And instead it's like, no, they paid They paid a price. Uh, you know, Sheridan has to resign. He can't go on doing what he was doing before the world has changed. The fifth season is like, handing episodes to Joe Straczynski and saying, all right, you, you want to see what happens when you pick up the pieces after you broke them all? Uh, here you go. Tell that story. And that's the story he chooses to tell. And, and uh, in some ways, I really like that, that it's like, yeah, they lived happily ever after that. No, they instead, they, they had new struggles and new stories and new adventures. Um, and uh, as somebody who has not watched the fifth season since it aired, and but has a general feeling of kind of questions about it. I'm looking forward to revisiting it actually to see how I feel. But I like that idea. I do fundamentally like the idea that just because it feels like this is a series finale here, like what happens next is not, you know, it's not simple. It's messy. And I think that's consistent with Babylon 5. Yeah, a happy ending is is just, you know, where you choose to stop telling the story. Mm-hmm. And most stories would probably choose to stop <laughs> right here. And and yeah. That is un- unless your bodily assumed into heaven. Right. Right, right. By Lorian. In which case, yes, it is a happy Why ending. Why am I suddenly reminded of Jakar's line about you don't uh, you don't witness history, you only survive it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. All right. Um, well, well, speaking of, of Jakar, we, we do have more in store for Londo and Jakar. Uh, they are they are side by side for, for quite a bit of season five. So that, that odd relationship that they are developing continues to develop throughout the course of that season. So we get more of them. Anybody want to say anything else? Like I said, there's so much fertile ground here for, for forward-looking things to talk about. Isn't there anything else you want to cover before we before we sign off and, uh, and leap into the all deconstruction? Love, all love is unrequited from uh, Lanier oh, to Delenn yes. is the knife yeah. uh, that leads us, the knife, the knife stab <laughs> that leads us to his whole storyline from season five, yep. which, again... I, my memory is I hated it, and now perhaps I will appreciate it uh, a little bit more. But at the time, I really it was really ang- it made me very angry that this character that I liked was being taken down this kind of obviously dark and destructive path. But here, I mean, you can't say that it wasn't set up because right. this is yep. that that our last. If this was to be the end of Babylon Five, like our last side of Lanier is this moment, and then in uh, Sleeping in Light, basically it's like, well, nobody knows where Lanier is. Nobody, That's nobody it. mentions. That's him. it. Nobody. I mean, he's he's that he's 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 gone. He's gone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I hadn't even thought about that. So you know, that's a wrap for Lanier. Goodbye. I'm trying it's, to remember. It's... Wait, is when they go around the table and 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 mention names of those who are gone. Uh, Lynn doesn't say Lanier. I think I thought she did, but I could be wrong. I don't know. Maybe, um, but that would be it. Mm-hmm. In, in the right. mentions, and it's certainly consistent. 
I, I, I will admit, I have only seen Sleeping in Light the one time, mm-hmm. and I've never revisited it, and I'm planning on not doing it until you guys until we do make your, you. <laughs> until you do your until you do your your big uh, episode uh, on it, and then I will revisit it. I'm gonna I'm gonna take the slow path with you. That's nice. Yeah, and it, Shannon, it, you are right. She did toast Lanier. Okay. Okay. See. Well, that's 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 something. At least it gets mentioned. So, but that's how it would have been played, right? Mm-hmm. Is like, oh, and then Lanier is gone. <laughs> right. Something <laughs> like, happened. Whoa, what happened? Something happened to him. Just like, you know, something <laughs> happened to um, Londo because I think Veer toasts him and and right. so forth. Yeah, at least we know what happens to Londo because we've been seeing it since the beginning of True. the show practically. Um, so, but uh, the reason that I was uh, so quick to sort of jump in and, and talk about uh, how I felt like Marcus at least at this point, his his story was not creepy, uh, be- was because he wasn't requiring anything from the other side, which mm-hmm. is very much the opposite of where we end up going with Lanier. So yeah. I, <laughs> right, yeah. uh, I had the same reaction the first time I saw it, um, and and subsequent viewings. Actually, I just I didn't like it because I love Lanier as a character so much, but mm-hmm. I do think that it's. It, it's a thing that you can see happen to real people in real life. So now it makes much more sense to me having watched and looked for it. So I'm, I am just as well interested in watching season five to see how I feel about it this time. <sighs> Sigh. All right. Anything else, you guys, before we head on out into the wild blue yonder? I'm re- ready for a really, really weird episode coming up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, Chip. I got a good news for you. <laughs> it's the weirdest episode of all. Of all. <laughs> yep. What, all right. What, well, what do you do when you suddenly get more time? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, uh, yeah. Thank you again, Jason, for joining us. It was a delight to talk to you about an episode that feels so happy at the end. Um, I know. And uh, finally, I can put those uh, knowledge and trivia that I earned 20 years ago to use in this episode. So thank you for that. Mm -hmm. And of course, thank you to the listeners as well. I hope you will come back again next time when Shannon shepherds us through a conversation about, yes, one of the most weird and interesting episodes of B5 of all time. Until then, this is Erica in Edmonton. Shannon in Durham. And Chip in Durham. And you've been listening to the audio guide to Babylon 5. Begin the detonation of the sun. Begin the detonation of the sun. Sorry, that's my favorite part of that. <laughs> <laughs>